While you guys are settling in, um, just wanted to, it's just a little bit of an informational thing. Um, if you're ever interested in canon, particularly how we got the New Testament canon, um, Michael J. Kruger is your guy. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, another wonderful one. Um, Bruce Metzger um, is more into textual criticism, if you're interested in textual criticism. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a little bit on the other side, but he's a very famous um, textual critic, so it's good to be aware of him. Um, any other noteworthy textual critic or canon scholars that come to mind? I mean, James White's pretty good, but he doesn't necessarily specialize in it. Right. F.F. Um, F. Bruce is a little bit older. Um, I think he was pretty into canon and textual criticism, so um, if you ever need any like resources on Old Testament textual criticism. There is one book. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but that is a very comprehensive landmark um, seminal work in Old Testament canon. Um, some interesting history. If you ever have any questions, I can at least direct you into the right area for some resources. So, all right. How many of you are interested in law in general? Lawyer? Okay. I'm literally studying it, Sam. What's that tell you? <laughs> yeah, I, I was sad. Abigail wasn't here. I believe she's pre-law. Um, but um, for those of you who are interested in law, um, you're probably familiar with Lady Justice. Um, she carries the scales in her hands to justly weigh out evidence. She wears a blindfold to impartially judge. She carries a sword to execute judgment, that Greek statue from a long time ago. And you're familiar with you know, the scales and stuff. Um, and so society is built on a notion of justice. We are to be governed by law, not arbitrary whims of men. You've probably heard phrases politicians throw out, the rule of law. That's the idea, is we're to be governed by law, justice, not um, arbitrary whim. And when attempting to decide truth in some situation, when attempting to define what justice is, we give credence to various witnesses. Even in our own personal lives, someone may cry some sort of story to us, but without the credence of others, there's a degree of suspicion um, regarding the veracity of that situation. You know, when, when you just hear, it's he, sheds, he said, she said, and you know, we've all found ourselves in those situations where you have one party saying one thing and another saying another thing. How do you decide? Well, obviously you have to have some sort of witness to what the truth is. Justice in the Bible has a long history associated with it and witnesses. Um, in the Decalogue, even, we hear the famous words, thou shalt not, what's one of the ones pertaining to witnesses? Thou shalt not, or Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. From the very beginning, um, that's been the expectation um, of God's people. Men, however, naturally tend to bear false witness. Um, and so... Um, Scripture is very, very clear that um, you're not going that you should not be condemned by um, my word against your word. There should be more to it than just one person condemning you. That's not how you should be condemned. So I wanted to start out with a little bit of an overview regarding witnesses in the Bible, and I promise this is relevant to First John. We'll get there eventually. Uh, Deuteronomy 17:6, uh, Deuteronomy 19:15, Second Corinthians 13:15, Matthew 18:16, 1 Timothy 5:19, Hebrews 10:24. 
De- yes, it is. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 6. testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Any situations in which they rigged that? Like they got two or three witnesses that jumped to mind? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, crucifixion. Well, they paid some people off because of their law, which said that's really on the up and up, isn't it, right? You want to adhere to the Old Testament law, so you buy some people off to do that. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Second Corinthians 13.15. Paul applies this principle to a New Testament truth. Ah, boy, what'd I do? <laughs> uh, is it 1 Corinthians? That doesn't exist. Oh. Oh. 3? 2 Corinthians 3.15? 1.15? <laughs> so I just mess around with these numbers until one of them's right. 5.13. Five, is it 5.13? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said mess with the numbers. 3.15 is a thing, but... That's not... Okay, basically, <laughs> basically in these passages, Paul is, well, he's just quoting the Old Testament and applying it to a church situation. Um, so it, it's basically a quote of the Decalogue. It's, it's in there. If you really want me to find it, I'll find it for you later. Matthew 18, 16. I just do this so you know I don't make this stuff up, okay? I, I, I include a lot more than I feel like I need to, just so you guys know. Uh, Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that... Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. First Timothy 5.19. Oh, that's me. 5.19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Not the point, but that's a good lesson for you guys, too, by the way, right there. That's a, it's very easy to critique your elders and say they're doing something wrong. And if you really feel that they're doing something wrong, you should, you should take your own thoughts more seriously um, before you go at them with that. Even if Paul meant that for the emails you send to the church office. Hebrews 10:28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. We have a very interesting political situation coming up in which um, um, swearing by something is going to be a notable feature. Obviously, we have the situation with the Supreme Court justice and or, or the presidential. And what is one of the things that you see somebody do um, when they're sworn into office? What is one of the traditional things that we do? So help you God. Absolutely. We swear by something that is superior to us, that is ultimately true. But let me ask you this, and I think this will make fine, fine sense when we get there. If you're God, who are you going to swear by? Because we're swearing to someone higher, more true than ourselves. Who would God swear by? Himself. Himself, absolutely. Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Who would testify for God? Who can testify for the Almighty? He swears by himself. He testifies of himself. 
because there is none greater to testify. Now, let's go ahead and go over to 1 John chapter 5. This is one of, chapter 5 is just a, it's an interpretive challenge overall. There's a, a few different things that are, are difficult in 1 John chapter 5, whether that's at this, this juncture or at the end of the chapter. We have a few different things. Um, now, if you go over to 1 John chapter 5, we are going to be dealing with the testimony of God. Jehovah is going to witness. If you want the true Jehovah's Witness, it is in 1 John 5. Now, if you'll recall the verses that we're just coming off of, it states that um, you are an overcomer of the world if and only if, I-F-F, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's in verse 4. Who is he that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now tonight, um, I'm going to share this outline. We're only going to be dealing with A. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll be dealing with B and C. A is the particulars of God's testimony. B, the purpose of God's testimony. And C, the response to God's testimony. Now, um, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, what do you find to be the dominant pa uh, word in passage uh, from verse 6? through verse 12. What do you find to be the dominant word? If one word, if you had to say, yeah, it's the key word for this section, what would you pick it out to be? Your, it might be it might be a different translation. What do you have? Testimony. testimony. Yeah, ESV translates it testimony. Um, witness might be the KJV term. Um, so that word, testify, testimony, witness, that seems to be a word that is repeated numerous times in this passage. Um, verse six, verse seven, uh, verse nine, verse ten. Verse uh, 11, it's repeated a fair amount of times. Um, so I would, I would count testify as the key word here. This word is martus in Greek or some form of it, um, which is what we are called to do, to testify. Now, I, I believe the, self, the connection is self-evident here, but Christians were so given to testifying regarding Jesus that the word uh, martus eventually became associated with those who gave witness and paid the ultimate price, and you're probably familiar with the word martyr, which is where this word, our English word martyr, comes from Christians who have given the testimony, um, and that it became so synonymous with what the Christians did that those who were slain went by that term. Now the immediate question here in this passage is, you know, we're coming off a claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Why should we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Why should we believe that he is God, the second member of the Trinity? Why should we believe that he is eternal, eternally perfect, uncreated? Why should we believe that? His contemporaries called him a liar. His contemporaries called him a deceiver. His contemporaries implied that he was a drunkard implied him as a fake, uh, 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 insurrectionist, a rebel, a lawbreaker, a fanatic, a madman, a demonic. That was what popular culture had to say about him. At best, a good teacher. Why should they believe that it was the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? The Jews today don't believe that. Um, they've never believed it. Why should we believe that he is the Son of God, 
second member of the Trinity, possessor and giver of eternal life, the Savior of sinners? Why? The answer is very simple. Because of the infallible, incontrovertible, and unassailable testimony of God himself. This is the testimony of God, as I've already dropped in the outline. First uh, John 5, 6, the first five words, please. This is he who came. First five words. Can't, can't get any further than that. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's beautiful, is it not? Uh, there's a sense in which this is a critical statement regarding the existence of Christ prior to his incarnation. Notice John didn't say that Christ became. Notice John didn't say that he started existing, but rather that he came to us. He changed his location, but he did not begin existing. Uh, John in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 14, the word became flesh. It is that he already existed. He's not an angel or man, but the Son of God who came to us. 1 John 3.8 has a very, I think, a very catchy little way of saying this. Um, 1 John 3.8, yeah. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared... Jesus appeared, he did not become. Now that's a very critical statement when we're thinking about um, the deity of Christ. And that's what we're starting out defending. So this is, um, this is a place I want to begin. Now, when it says, your translation may have, um, this is he, this is the one. Um, the one, the word the one there in Greek. Now, this is a very interesting word in of itself. It's in the emphatic position in the Greek. What this does is that it emphasizes the uniqueness of that position. In other words, this is the one and the only one. There is none other. Christ is the only begotten Son of God who came to save us for our sin. The Father is testifying to the unique position that the Son occupies in the economy of redemptive history. So, what are some things that are going to testify about this unique position of the Son of God? We're going to get into those and a little confusing looking things, but I want just to summarize so far, Jesus, pre-existent before the incarnation, came to us and him being unique, only one that the Father is testifying to, the one and only that there is. That is packed into those first five words. And I think that's an important basis before we jump off into what is testifying to him. Um, because it's very important to know who we are testifying to. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. It doesn't have to, but people make it confusing. Um, so what are the things that testify to the unique position of the Son of God? The first two things that we see here are the water and the blood. I'll finish off that um, verse. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. What? What does that mean? Now, I have five different interpretations here. I have the one I like. I have the one that I think is dogmatically correct, actually. Let me rephrase that. But... I'm not going to give you those yet because like like a lot of our professors do at school, what do you think water and blood means? And if you've studied this passage, pipe down for just a minute. 
what are some things that come to mind? Because I, I theological giants through the ages, they're not that creative. <laughs> what, what comes to mind when you hear water and blood? What do you think that that is referring to, representing? Yeah. It reminds me of the saying, blood is thicker than water, which is misunderstood, which is the blood of, I think it's the blood of um, kinship is thicker than the water of the womb. So. Yes. Um, other things that that reminds you of represents in your, jumps to mind. I thought of two things. Water and blood could be like two different parts of the Trinity, or it could be like humanoid, <laughs> like the human part of Jesus. Okay. You're close on one of the five that I have here, but I did not think of the Trinity one. Other other interpretations that jump to mind? I was thinking it was the two most important moments in his uh, life, I guess, his baptism and his death. Okay. Hmm. That's what I was going to say. It's just like in simple terms, it just reminds me of baptism mm-hmm. and crucifixion. Okay, other thoughts? Any other things that jump to mind? Didn't water run out of the side of his wound, too? So mm. Blood and water trickled down separated when he was crucified, and that is, that is something. Anything else? Okay, so let's, I'm going to go through these. Ooh, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay. Now, uh, that is not one of the ones I have, but you so- <laughs> you sounded just like a great medieval theologian <laughs> allegorizing that all the way. That, that, was, that was a nice little representation. I like that. Okay, so first one, uh, I'm going to give you five. There's um, um, undoubtedly more. Um, first one that is, um, it is that Jesus' side. Some, some tie it to the water and blood that flowed out separate at his death. Um, this one was the view held by Augustine. I'm not personally a huge fan of it. Um, When considering the context of this passage, being that we are arguing for the divinity of Christ, um, the merely human process of water and blood flowing out does not seem especially relevant. And besides, I think there's no exegetical reason to assume that this is what John is referring to. And I would dismiss it as rather fun speculation without any grounding in the text. Um, The second view Um, Some tie it to the sacraments. That one may not have jumped to mind initially. This view was held by Martin Luther. Once again, I'm not a fan. Um, The idea here is that the blood signifies the communion and the water signifies believer's baptism. Um, Once again, I do find no exegetical connection. But beyond that, theologically, I don't find any connection. And this is the reason why. The sacraments are the church's witness to Christ, not God's. Um, back when we were, we first came back, we had the lesson on communion. Um, what is one of the things that's stated about communion in that first Corinthians passage? That it is, we proclaim his death until he comes through communion. This is the church's testimony or baptism. This is our proclamation of faith. This is the church's testimony to Christ, but it does not seem especially to represent God's uh, testimony to Christ. Now, uh, some tie it to the fulfillment of ancient rites of the law, um, the water representing ritual cleansing, the blood signifying animal sacrifice. Not surprisingly, this view was held by John Calvin. Uh, once again, I feel that this is a bit of an unrelated stretch. 
Fourth, um, there are some who believe that water and blood equal the real breaking of water and blood upon uh, delivery of baby Jesus. I believe that this fits the incarnation theme, right? Because um, Son of God appeared, he became flesh. I, I will give it that. Um, but I don't think it adequately explains the rest of the verse where it says not by water only, but by water and by blood. That doesn't necessarily make sense if you're considering it in terms of Jesus' birth. Finally, and this is, um, I, I normally save the one I take for last. Um, this is what I believe to be the correct interpretation that indeed the water refers to Jesus' baptism and the blood refers to his death at the cross. Now you may be saying that this seems just as arbitrary as all the rest, um, but hear me out on this. First, there was divine testimony given to Jesus at his baptism, was there not? We hear the Father saying, you know, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, you see the Spirit descending upon him as well. At his death, you had divine attestation um, to this as well. You had the tearing of the veil, people coming back from the dead, whatever that means, wherever that fits in, and an eclipse occurred. The sun was darkened there for a little bit. So we have a couple divine attestations, but I think this is this is a correct interpretation. This is the interpretation that I take for the next phrase. Um, notice that next phrase, not by water only, but by water and by blood. So what's going on here? Did John like suddenly pick up a stutter, maybe some senility? Why why would he say this again? Well, let's go back. Let's go back to basics, back to very week one that we started this book. What is the background that this book is written against? What heresy, let me say it that way, is John fighting through this uh, book? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Now, what are some things Gnostics believed? Well, they believed that Jesus became the Son of God. Some, some, brands, some brands of Christian Gnosticism believe that he was the Son of God at his baptism, but before he suffered on the cross, the Christ spirit departed from him and he was no longer Christ. And so what I think John is saying here is that he was, he was the same divine Jesus at his baptism as he was at his death. He is out to say that once and for all that he was the son of God in the river and he was the son of God on the cross. It was God who died for us, not some random shell of a man left without the Christ spirit. So I take this to be a direct shot at um, a Gnostic teaching um, that was becoming more prevalent during this time. Do you, you see, out of those five, do you see why I find that one to be more convincing based off of that? Um, I don't think any of the others really capture why John would say, not by water only, but by blood. I mean, like, what are we going to do? Get baptized and not have communion? I mean, I don't know. I just going to have birth and not have water and blood. It just, it doesn't seem to fit unless you have that Gnostic background. Um, next, we are introduced to our third witness, not by water only, but by water and blood. And why not throw this in here? And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. Now we're introduced to our third witness, the Holy Spirit. Notice a connection here too. Um, here it says that the Holy Spirit uh, witnesses, and later it calls it God's witness. Um, down in uh, verse 10, it talks about it being God's witness, which I find to be an indirect argument for the divinity of the Spirit. 
Um, but why the Holy Spirit? This, the Spirit's connected with Jesus' conception, right? The, the uh, Early in Jesus' life, he was involved in the baptism, the wilderness temptation, the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the apostles, early church, etc. But why is he called the Spirit of Truth? Now, tuck this away somewhere in your brain. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of divine truth. In, in terms of the Trinity, he is the agent of revelation. This is, within the Trinity, his function is to reveal. Um, another string of verses, I anticipate that if you have one, it's probably now. 2 Peter 1.21, Acts 1.16, Hebrews 3.7, Hebrews 9.8, 1 Corinthians 2.10, Nehemiah 9.30, 1 Corinthians 2, 9-16. 2 Peter 1, 21. Notice how the Holy Spirit always is the one associated with revelation, revealing, um, opening people's eyes, etc. to the truth. 2 Peter 1, 21. Great verse. Oh, love it. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were called along by the Holy Spirit. Very long. Scripture is given by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.16 Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Holy Spirit um, was inspiring David in the Old Testament as well in scriptures, Hebrews 3.7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice... Holy Spirit is doing the revealing aspect of God's work once again, Hebrews 9, 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. 1 Corinthians 2, 10. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Nehemiah 9, 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. Prophetic utterances in the Old Testament were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. <clears throat> but as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See how in combination both the fact that God is revealed by the Holy Spirit and that um, only those to whom the Holy Spirit reveals himself are able to see the truth. Otherwise, it is folly to them. We could go, uh, there are plenty more verses. We could keep going on with how the Spirit functions um, in this way, um, and we will. Uh, John 16, <laughs> 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
When you get to verse 13, pause. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in him. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot burn them now. Now, this next part, this... All those things are very relevant to our discussion of the Holy Spirit, but from verse 13 on, I really want you to tune in and listen to this um, because it's absolutely immense. And the revelation that is given by the Spirit um, to the apostles will directly testify to the deity of Christ in the coming years. So when Christ says these things, have this passage in mind. Now that's that's why you and I are here today, right? I mean, because we were given eyes to see by the Holy Spirit, to see the revelation of God and believe it. Both on our side, we were we were our eyes were open to the truth. But what revelation did we believe? The Word of God, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So any any real sense in which we come to believe truth, it is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of Christ, very literally then, because of the testimony and witness of the Spirit, both by the things that we are reading from the Holy Spirit and believing, but also the very fact that we believe them is because the Spirit has revealed that to our hearts. Otherwise, as 1 Corinthians would say, it would be folly to us, um, and we would not believe that. Verses 7 and 8. Uh, first one, right? Okay. Uh, for there uh, are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and three are in agreement. Or and the three. Now these three testimonies, uh, and these are, they agree, and they result in a great witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's work of revealing matches what happened at his baptism, which matches what happened at his death. This matching is important, is it not? I mean, after all, you would expect, in a, in a legal situation, you would look for your witnesses to come to the same independent conclusion as you seek to judge what is true. You would want the witnesses to agree, and indeed they do. This is exactly why the Gospel of John was written in the first place, the Gospel of John. Uh, John 20, 30 through 31. John is very nice about putting purpose statements in his writing. By the way, we're about to get to one. Um, verse 13 in 1 John 5 is a purpose statement at the end of his book. This is the equivalent in his gospel. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote this so that people would believe in the name of the Son of God, uh, that they might have life in his name. And that's the exact thing that he's doing here. Um, not necessarily through recording the signs and witnesses of Jesus, um, but rather to, um, to the water, the blood, and the spirit in First John. If you're interested, I challenge you to look up verses that support the deity of Christ, particularly from the Gospels. I want you to delete John 
out of the ones that you're looking at and try to find verses that support the deity of Christ. It's going to be very, very difficult. Very difficult. John almost exclusively has the I am statements and almost all the verses about the deity of Christ. So this is something that was very near and dear to John's heart and to his purpose in writing the gospel and in this epistle. Um, uh, really, even beyond that, it's just John. John's gospel overall is more of a theological, insightful look, a heartfelt look into the ministry of Christ rather than the mere record in a sense that you would see out of Luke or Matthew and Mark, not that they don't have their own spins and things that they're trying to support, but John really takes us more personal, uh, Genesee Bois, do it, you know? <laughs> Something else in support of joining authorship um, is the fact that it is more personal and he was known as the disciple whom Christ loved. And the idea that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense if that's the most personal gospel of most. Um, personal account and meaningful, not necessarily that the others aren't meaningful, but you see a lot more of that in John. Yeah, you, you just get the sense that John's a, like he's harsh, he's straightforward, but he's he seems like a pretty heartfelt dude. You know, when you just pick up that vibe from, I'm serious, like he was the youngest, I mean, but he had a really soft, tender side that Jesus and him really connected on a different level. And, um, I mean, even to the last where Christ reclined on him. Now, this is where we're going to stop. But I, I know some of you are just absolutely clamoring within. I can hear your internal screams and they're just demanding from me a comprehensive analysis and treatment of the comma Johannium. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just a really a burning question on your heart um, for this week's lesson, but we're just not going to get into it this week, okay? I know you want to hear about the Comma Johannium, but we're not going to do it.